Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Lafea Mitchell. With over 20 years of experience working with neurodiverse individuals, Lafea is a licensed marriage and family therapist and the creator of The Lafea Way, a relational approach that helps to build bridges for effective interactions in difficult relationships and social situations. She is also the mother of three children, two of whom are autistic. In this conversation, we discuss the types of families that seek her services, the four core strategies of the Lafea Way, what she calls the emotion-soaking phenomenon, how a parent's past experiences might impact their ability to make decisions now, the different levels of acceptance and how they are tied to a parent's personal growth, some common struggles of parents trying to understand their child's needs, the hidden effects of family dynamics, why the expression problem child is problematic, cultural sensitivity and how the Black community responds to her program, and one of the most rewarding experiences she's ever had working with children on the spectrum. In this episode, discover what's possible when your response is in line with your truest intentions. To learn more about Lafea, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, Please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you Lafea Mitchell. Hi, Lafea. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thanks for coming on the show. Yes, I'm very happy to be here. Could you introduce yourself for our listeners? Hi, everybody. My name is Lafea Mitchell. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'm the creator of the Lafea Way, an advanced relational philosophy. I mostly deal with uh, parents who have children who are neurodiverse and for years, I've been teaching them how to get along better with, engage, and all those wonderful things with their children. All right. So how did you begin working with the autistic population? Oh, man. It's an interesting story because, you know, in school, we kind of got like a tiny little blurb about autism to tell me absolutely nothing. And then years later, I ended up being invited by a friend to uh, be a part of a program, an intensive outpatient program. And there, most of their work was with children who were on the spectrum. And so it was at that time that I actually started to learn more about autism spectrum disorder because I didn't know very much. I did know, though, at the time, because it kind of coincided with my having my daughter, who had all kinds of you know, autism spectrum traits, but I did not know about autism at the time. But the way that I kind of worked with her helped me in my work there with the children at the center. So it's just interesting how I ended up 
it was like almost at the same time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. so you actually have three children. Yes. Okay. And the two younger ones are on the spectrum. Is that correct? They are. But I tend to tell them that they have traits just because they they understand that better. Okay. So could you tell us a little bit about them? How old are they and what are some of their interests? Okay, so my two youngest are 19 and 17. My 19-year-old, his interests are few. So he loves, you know, like the he's the Dungeons and Dragons kid who basically did not have like a sleepover until he was 17. <laughs> and, you know, so he's pretty isolated. He's a great kid, but he's more of my... I don't care, kid. So, you know, she's not really interested in what you're saying. Then, you know, he won't hear you, you know, things like that. And my daughter, she had quite a been, you know, he was kind of the hand flapper and that kind of thing. But my daughter, she's more of the sensory overload kid. So it was everything would cause disruption for her, loud noises, uh, people trying to look at her. In the eyes, um, and lots of she just had lots of struggles as a baby. Every lots of crying, and aversion to kind of other people. Basically, with her, I just kind of worked her slowly, you know, with full acceptance, so that we could get her, so that she could take in, you know, like the eye contact and certain noises. We kind of taught her how to verbalize the frustrations or to physically do things that would cause her to be able to self-regulate and that kind of thing. So yeah, she's kind of my sensory nightmare kid. <laughs> oh, okay. And how are they doing now? Do they live at home with you? Yes, they live at home with me and they're doing great. They both do very well. They're both highly intelligent. My son is now in college. Um, well, he's going to a JC, junior college. And my um, daughter, she's in high school. She is a straight A student. She she does very well. She's very interested in anime. She has a very restricted uh, group of friends. She does not really like many other people. <laughs> and uh, yet she's just full immersion in Asian culture, like teaches herself how to write in Chinese, speak Japanese, speak Korean. She's wow. an interesting kid and, and an artist. So like everything that she takes an interest in, I take an interest in so that we can empower her, you know, through her strength areas. Mm -hmm. And what's the dynamic like between the three of them? Your oldest is a son also, right? Yes, he's 29. So he doesn't live with us, um, but they all get along really well. Like I said, my oldest son is like Mr. Cool. Like he was Mr. Popularity in school and all of that. And so he's 10 years older, you know, than the next. So Mm -hmm. he's like the big brother who... Maybe if they were closer to the same age, he might not have been as nice. (laughs) He did have some struggles, like when he was a teenager and they were, you know, like seven and, you know, seven and five. And why do they do that? And they should, you know, kind of thing. And so had to kind of help him move out of that space (laughs) because he would want to make them cool like him, Mm -hmm. you know. And so, (laughs) but they all get along really well. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Well, my younger two, it's like a love hate, like with any brother, sister. So Mm -hmm. they drive each other nuts, you know, and they super, they both have a tendency toward enjoying, I shouldn't say it this way, but they kind of enjoy annoying people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But each other? 
anybody. But I'm oh, the same okay. way. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm kind of the same way. So it's it's been an interesting journey with them because when they were really young, they used to fight a lot. But it doesn't really benefit them because I'm a different kind of parent. And I don't really get upset about arguments and things like that. I only come to certain conclusions. So as opposed to becoming emotionally upset, which kind of feeds the beast, you know, in them, that kind of, you know, not that they're doing it on purpose mm-hmm. or anything, but, um, you know, kind of feeds that little inner satisfaction with annoying people. Um, <laughs> what I tend to do is I would tell them, well, that's not going to work out well for you, you know, because it, I'm just the only assumption I can make because I have two wonderful kids is that like, if you're arguing a lot, then maybe you're both overtired or something. And so, you know, it just mm-hmm. became non-beneficial <laughs> for them mm-hmm. to fight a lot. Mm-hmm. So they kind of don't, they, they annoy each other sometimes, but they don't really, you know, go too far with it. They get along really well. <laughs> That's good. You mentioned that you're a different kind of parent. So what made you develop your approach the Lafayette way? Man, okay. So my approach is literally my approach. It's like, um, I've always been a little strange, <laughs> a little different. So it was just natural for me to be less emotionally reactive to what they were doing, to be more like logically reactive, which it attracts their interest more or their compliance more when there's logic. So for example, things like if they don't want to clean their room, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, I understand that it's logical. Like I wouldn't want to clean my room either, like as a choice. (laughs) (laughs) so so for me when they don't want to clean their room it's not like this personal offense it's not like I'm thinking oh my goodness I do all these things for you and you can't just clean your room right which is a typical parental response but mine is more like oh I really don't blame you but you know since none of us like bugs you know we want to keep the room clean (laughs) you know like things like that right Mm -hmm. and so the philosophy that I that I work from is more logic based. And I was extremely resistant at first to trying to make it a thing. But it was just like after a lot of years of working with parents and they kept telling me, you know, you have to tell other people what it is that you're doing because this actually works for our kids. And and the work that I was doing was with kids who had been failing treatment for like five, ten years. It was ridiculous, like with no results. Then it was almost like I kind of got to that very, that last kid. And I remember her very specifically where her dad said, man, she's been seeing therapists for 10 years. And she was like completely, the whole family was like immersed in like the trauma experience, right? Of just her, you know, nobody really being able to help them or relate to her. And so it was 10 years of her suffering. And then a very short time with me, things really started to shift and change and there were thoughts that the parents had that were inaccurate and there was just a lot. And so then I was like, okay, you know what? I do need to share this with people because kids should not suffer for that long just because people aren't informed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the profile of children that you help parents with? Well, typically I like to say it's a, what people are referring to as a neurodiverse child now. So, you know, ADHD kids, some of the reactive attachment kids, trauma kids who've had histories based in trauma, any children who are very sensitive to the feeling energies of other people. And that's especially true when we're when you're dealing with kids who are on the autism spectrum. 
I don't think it's as bad now, but one of the previously common mistakes that people would make is to believe that children on the spectrum don't really feel very much, you know? Mm-hmm. And it really is that there's just a lot of overwhelm that's happening. Not that they don't feel, but that it's just basically like sensory overload to deal with the typical like human experience. Cause human beings are very illogical. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, they tend to be sorry, very <laughs> illogical. And so if you can get past that piece, then all of a sudden you're, you're gaining better results because you're actually speaking to the children from a space that shows that you actually understand their experience as opposed to your guessing based on your own experience. Right. So parents are coming to you because they are having a hard time teaching their kids something or having a hard time relating to their kids. Is that right? Having a hard time relating to their kids, which oftentimes leads to, you know, just there ends up being behavioral issues lots of unhealthy relating, you know, so the relationships are completely and totally damaged, you know, and lots of devastation all over the place. So the children aren't functioning at the level that they can function. The parents know this and they're frustrated. Children are frustrated with how the parents treat them. That's typically what I get. And what ages of children do you work with? I've actually worked with children at age going as low as uh, two to three years old. But I tend more towards that around that age eight, because it takes a while usually to get diagnoses or to have some of the extreme behavior issues that bring parents into therapy, mm-hmm. right? Because sometimes they don't, they don't come in when there are minor issues. They just kind of see it as not compliance or whatever. But once it starts to cause an extreme disruption, which usually can happen anywhere, once they get to five or six, you can get some extreme disruptions. How would you define those disruptive behaviors? It could be being overly argumentative all the way down to, you know, hitting the parents, right? We're, you know, there are so many behaviors that disrupt, and it depends on the family as well, that disrupts families, family functioning enough for parents to want to seek therapy. Some come in because their kids refuse to do anything that they ask them to do. You know, some parents come in because their children are failing in the school and they don't understand why, you know, refusing to do homework at home. You know, there's there are a variety of reasons why they come out and seek therapy. Okay. So, Lafayette, you've published three books in the Lafayette series. And first, I want to say that I would recommend these books to any parent who wants to better understand their child because it's so easy to read and it's very relatable. The language that you use, it makes you just kind of want to keep turning the page. So I really enjoyed reading them and I would recommend them to other people who are interested. Now, I want to get into some of the details of your approach. You talk about a phenomenon that you call emotion soaking. Could you explain what you mean by that? Yes. Emotion soaking is the unintentional sponging of the feeling energies of those around you. Previously, I defined it as those you're interacting with, but you know, this has evolved. So if it's those that you're interacting with, then the emotion soaking is even stronger. But you can also soak in the emotions of just those in general in the room with you. 
So this is why a lot of the children who do emotion soak, like children who are on the spectrum, you know, the eight, especially with spectrum ADHD kids, reactive attachment kids, those with trauma histories, which I would say all those experience trauma just in not being understood, mm-hmm. they will take in what's going on, the inner experiences of others. So even if someone is trying to present as calm on the outside, if they are in turmoil internally, then the hyper, what I call the hypersensitive child, the child who's you know sensitive to the stimuli outside of them. And I always say the six senses. So we have the five senses, you know, uh, seeing, hearing, tasting, you know, all those things, right? Very sensitive there, but also throw in that sixth piece, which is the inner experiences of others. Mm-hmm. They often will be overwhelmed throughout the day just from being in a classroom or, you know, being in a work environment because you have so many bodies all around you that there's so much that you're taking in all day long. Mm-hmm. So how will understanding this help parents in interacting with their kids? It helps parents because it gives them my first things first, which is if you do not interact with a hypersensitive child and with a calm internal experience, then you can expect that you're going to get very difficult reactions from that child because they're going to take what's coming from you. They're going to soak that in. And sometimes it'll be multiplied in them times 10 and they won't understand that that feeling energy came from you. They will believe that it's their own feeling, which has become now their own feeling energy because they take it on as their own now. That's why I call it the sponging, uh, taken in as their own. And then you will misunderstand their reaction to what it is you're saying to them. The more knowledgeable you are about what's really going on, like understanding the real truth, the better you can respond. So then if you come, you've had a bad day at work, you ask a child to clean their room and they have a meltdown, then you can understand that perhaps there's a possibility that maybe they took in some of that energy that you had, which you knew felt bad in the first place, that you had, and that's why they're having the strong reaction, not simply just the clean your room. Mm-hmm. Got it. You break down your approach into two primary components, right? So there's the know yourself, which kind of ties into this, right? Like knowing your own inner turmoils and knowing your child. Yes. So how do you guide parents to know themselves? Okay, now I've actually found a way to help them to know themselves and know their child and understand that it's all interconnected because we all have to be able to communicate with one another. And the way I've been able to capture it is through my core four strategy. Okay, and the four, the core four strategy of the LaFeo way, which now again it's evolved. I call my fur approach so that it's easier. I love acronyms, easier <laughs> to remember. Okay? okay, when you do that, then when you get to know yourself and know your child, when you're operating under the fur, right? The first step is the F find your calm, right? Mm. And with the fur, it all works together like the ingredients to a cake. And if you treat it that way, then you'll know all the ingredients have to be involved. You're constantly stirring, right? Mm -hmm. In order to make this work. If you're missing any of the key ingredients, then you'll end up with something 
not tasty or ugly or not lovely. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so that's kind of, so finding your calm has to be the first line of defense because emotion soaking is such a big element and you can find your calm through following the other steps, which is the second step. Step two is understand the real truth. When you understand the real truth, then all of our reactivity, which that'll follow into the next step, all of our reactivity to what's going on turns into now responsiveness instead of reactivity. When you understand the real truth, then when you're in a bad mood or your child is in a bad mood, you can do check-ins. So I have lots of acronyms to do check-ins. So one of those is like the HALT I use from the 12 Steps program, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. When you're understanding the real truth, if you're really cranky or they're really cranky, and this is a know yourself, know your child piece, you can say, hmm, I wonder if, you know, being hungry, angry, lonely, or tired are playing a part in here. Oh, I did stay up late last night. Oh, they did stay up late last night. Or, you know, I didn't have breakfast or they didn't have lunch, whatever. And then you can start to figure out what components might be playing. And I also have another acronym that I'd use. That's it. I won't go all the way into it, but that goes into triggers. You know, is this a trigger area for me or them, right? Is there a history that causes us to have a strong reactivity to this kind of thing, right? And uh, what's another embarrassing moment? So uh, awkward under the that's it. Is this an awkward moment? Are they embarrassed because I said something to them in front of other people? Am I embarrassed because they did something in front of other people? What that does is you might have the emotional response, like you might have the sting that I always say the sting that happens on the inside when these things happen. But then you won't. It, what happens when you have the, the strong emotional response is the brain tends to, by default, automatically try to figure out what happened to cause the bad feeling. Okay, And usually the brain's going to think of whatever is on the surface. Well, you said this or you did that will be the reasons. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're empowered with this, now understanding the real truth, then when the brain tries to default there, then you can say, wait, okay, could it be hungry, angry, lonely, tired? Could it be a trigger space? So then it reduces the intensity and kind of the seriousness we take in this emotional reaction that happens in the body. So it gives you a way to have a better response, which takes me into the third step, which is to respond in alignment with your truest intentions. Now, that is evolved from the book series. Now, the books, they still give you everything that you need. But like I said, over years, things evolve. So respond in alignment with your truest intentions, which is what? Okay, as a parent, you know that you want your children to feel safe, cared for, loved, all those wonderful things. But you get into reactions that reflect none of that, right? So when you're responding in alignment with your truest intentions, you're keeping in mind, which is understanding the real truth, another element of that, right? But you're keeping in mind, what do I really want to get out of this interaction? What do I really want in my home? If you say that you want peace in your home and you're yelling, then you're operating entirely against your own truer intentions, right? Mm-hmm. And there's so much more to it because, and then when you're responding, your, your responses are not in alignment with your truest intentions, then you're going to feel more intensely upset because you're going against your own self. It's like guilty in a way. Yes. Yes. Respond in alignment with your truest intentions. And then the last is what I call my three R's. Because that's why I say fur is like a long R. Okay. <laughs> with, with a long R. But what I call my three R's, and people always tell me, that's, that's six steps. I'm like, nope, 
is four steps and three hours go together. <laughs> <laughs> Sneaking in but, those extra steps. Yeah. And then that last piece, the, the three R's are what keeps the longevity. So now you're finding your calm. So you're reducing the effects of emotion soaking. You're understanding the real truth, which helps you to find your calm and respond in alignment with your truest intentions. You're responding in alignment with your truest intentions. And then to keep those in place, then the first in my three R's is recognize the small step improvements because it's not going to go from one to 100, right? This is going to happen in small steps. If you recognize those small steps, this is what will start to insert the hope that you need in order to keep going with what it is you're doing. Mm -hmm. When you recognize the small steps, then the second R is to reinforce them highly. Okay. So when you recognize a small step improvement, reinforce them highly. So if your kid would scream, would melt down for, for two hours before, and that meltdown, it, it kind of moved down to now because now you have better reactions or re better responses to them. Now it's only an hour. That is an improvement. Actually, that's a huge improvement. If, <laughs> if 10 minutes less than what it was before, that's a, that's an improvement. You want to recognize that you want to reinforce and say, hey, you know, I know you had a hard time, but you know what? It used to be this and now it's this. What would you do? Like, how did how did you get to a point to where you're able to regulate faster? You know, those kind of things. Right. Mm -hmm. Kind of builds momentum also in the child. Right. So now you're giving yourself hope and you're giving your child hope when you yeah. recognize and reinforce. And the last R is repeat. It's kind of like my rinse and repeat. Like okay. That's kind of <laughs> like my stirring. Right. Yeah. Repeat. And when I say repeat, I mean, always understand that you're vacillating, that you're moving through the four steps consistently. It's not like it's happening in order. It's that they happen all together. Right. Mm -hmm. That's that four step fur approach of the LaFayette way that really it helps parents and children. It reduces, eliminates that traumatic experience that they have with trying to relate to one another. So now they're actually really able to that love that you feel toward the other, they're actually really able to convey what they truly mean to convey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It takes a lot of self-awareness on the parent's part to be able to stop and remain calm in those really stressful situations. Yes. In an original series, it was, it was remain and I changed it. I, I moved it from remain calm to find your calm because find your calm is easier to relate to now because find your calm means, okay, I have it. I have this within me, right? It's just, I kind of maybe have to search for it. I have to figure out a way to get to it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it really is a way to, and like you said, to help parents become more self-aware. My goal is to help people to become truer to themselves ultimately. And when they're truer to themselves, then they're able to, relate in the way that they truly want to with their children. Yeah. And you also talk about how a parent's past experiences might impact their ability to make decisions now. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Now that, that comes in along with the understanding the real truth. Okay. So past experiences is so very important to recognize how the things that you have gone through in your life, like, for example, if you've ever felt bullied by your own parents or other people out there, if you have children who are defiant or what people call defiant, which I don't love that word, but who, you know, don't do what it is you say, that may trigger in you 
some of that old feeling of having been disrespected or or bullied or mistreated or whatever, and it's going to cause your reactivity to be at a higher level. So people have to understand when there's strong emotional reactivity, that has far more to do with what your experiences have been in this life than it does with the thing that's happening right there in the moment. Especially when you're getting extremely upset about things like a kid saying no or a kid saying, right, they're, when they're saying no and, and it's not a sign of complete disrespect for you, it's a thing that they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. or if they don't comply when you ask them to do something, a lot of parents see that as disrespect or they shoulds and all that kind of stuff. And all that's based in your past experiences, not in its in that strong emotional reactivity that you're having to it, it doesn't serve you because the kid can't come along with you when you're telling them that they don't clean their rooms. So this means they don't care about anybody else (laughs) or, you know, or they don't appreciate anything you've done for them. Then you're illogical now to that child. So now they cannot trust you (laughs) and your opinion about things. Yeah. Right. Which creates now a situation where they don't take you seriously because you don't know what you're talking about. And with kids, you definitely want it to feel like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> right. And especially with some neurodiverse kids who think in very concrete ways and need things to make sense to them, when you're adding a story or adding a meaning to the situation, it's not helping them understand it. Like, Not at all. This feeling of being disrespected or feeling that they're trying to manipulate you or something. That's all something that you're adding to the situation. Yes, yes. And I actually visit that concept of manipulation in the books as well, because parents, it's important that they find a new way to view things, okay? Because this concept of manipulation, no matter how you look at it, it's the child is working against themselves. And since we can never clearly define, right, or we can nearly never 100% guarantee that we're correct in assuming that the behaviors are based in manipulation, then it's more important to go to what's the end of the experience for you. So if you're experiencing what they're doing as a manipulation, then at the end of the day, if you see it as, okay, well, this behavior is clearly manipulative and is working against my child because it's going to get them resentment or less of what it is that they want, right? As opposed to this is manipulation, they must think that I'm stupid and now I'm upset because they're offensive to me, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But you go the other way, which is more solutions focused. Oh, this is gonna this this behavior right here is going to completely and totally work against them. So let me help them to engage in behavior that will work in their favor. If you make that shift, even if you have a kid who doesn't tell the truth a lot, then you don't have to, you know, call them out and no, you're a liar. And, you know, all these things that people do, and they get even then they're upset about them being a liar, you know, all this emotional stuff. All you have to do is say, okay, well, you know what? Even if this lie that they told were the case, this won't work out well for you. Because these are the things that you need to do in order to get more of what you want. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then it just it makes a shift so that you're no longer. And that's one of the big pieces to decreasing the amount of upset 
with, you know, finding your calm, that area right there, the amount of upset is by decreasing personalization of the behaviors of others. If you don't personalize what it is they're doing and you keep what they're doing about them, then all of a sudden that your emotional reactivity is reduced. I mean, what, 90% right? (laughs) Or more, right? Depending on who you are. But it's so important to when someone else is making a mistake. And when I say this is an advanced relational philosophy, I mean, it works great, especially, you know, for neurodiverse people, period. So, and I know that I've written this, you know, for parents and all that, but now this has grown again, it's expanded now to be relationship period. So we're doing this in staff developments, we're doing this with couples and all of that. But if someone is doing something that is upsetting to you and you love them and they love you, then you have to start recognizing it as them working against themselves. Okay, I know that you love me, right? You will tell me that you love me on a good day. Like, you know, sometimes <laughs> as certain kids, you're not going to get that. But you know that it's, that's the truth when it's a good day. <laughs> and so, but I know that you love. And what's happening now is this behavior right here is causing me not to like you so much, right? And to be disliked by someone you love is very hurtful. And even if they don't recognize it in the moment, who cares? Oh, I don't care about how other people feel. And then it's, oh, I'm really sad because no one likes me. Okay. Go by, you know, what their ultimate reaction is going to be to not being liked, as opposed to the words that are coming out of their mouths, right? At the time. But when you recognize that they're working against themselves, what that does is it helps to kick in that protectiveness, like especially for parents. Your parental protectiveness kicks in when you recognize, oh, this this kid is really working against themselves because it's really going to be really difficult to have high self-esteem when you have a parent who doesn't like you. Mm-hmm. Right. If you see it, if you see it that way, you can go into problem solving instead of personalization. Could it maybe backfire, though, if you tell them what you're saying right now makes me not like you in this moment? Could that lead to lower self-esteem? Yeah, no, you you definitely don't want to say that to them. This is a thought okay. process. <laughs> okay, so this is an it. inner, sorry, ooh, sorry. This is an inner process for a parent to go through so that when they do address the child, they can tell them, hey, you know, this is not really going to work in your favor because it's going to get it's going to get you less of what you want. And I'd like to be with you and get you more of what you want. So for example, when they won't clean their room. Right. Mm -hmm. You've asked them to clean their room and it's, you know, the concept is, you know, you work before you play. I know that sucks. Right. Like, I understand that that sucks, but that's how the world works. And I would be a terrible, terrible parent if I taught you otherwise. Right. So work before play. And so they don't clean their room. So and they love video games, whatever, you know, then it's like, oh, my goodness. okay, look, parents who set good boundaries they will have the video game play come after the work is done. That's just the smartest way to do it. That's the best way to avoid having the same problem every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My parents don't do that, but, you know, be a smart thing to do. But, you know, you tell them, hey, you know, it has to, you know, the way it works in the world is work before play. I know that you know that and it kind of sucks, but it's the way it works. So I have to teach that in the household. So I need the chores to be done before you'll have access to your game. So please set yourself up to have access to your game because we both want you to have that because that would make you so much happier, right? Then it becomes, it's just like a different way 
of relating so that now you're speaking to the thing that they want. And not that I'm taking anything away from you either. It's just this happens before this. So that's very mm-hmm. concrete, very logical instead of emotional. Yeah. And it's also guiding parents to be more empathetic with their children too. Like that language of, I know this sucks, but this is what we have to do right now. So kind of meeting them at that level instead of just dismissing it and coming from an authoritative point of view. Yes, it, it, it's, it's an I'm on your side approach. We can't expect like, see, a lot of times that's why I say a lot of uh, families are, it's almost like they're P- they have PTSD, like there's true trauma that's happened here, right? It's because it does, it feels like they were at war, like they're not on the same side. This language brings you into a space where it's like, hey, we're on each other's side. Because if you're on their side, they're going to be more inclined to be on your side. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And Lafayette, you also talk about the different levels of acceptance. And we know that it's important for neurodiverse kids to feel accepted, especially by their parents, to help improve that self-esteem and know that there's nothing wrong with them, that they're not bad kids. So could you break down those three levels of acceptance and walk us through the differences between them? Yes. Now, the three before I get into that, three levels of acceptance I, I brought in because I brought up brought in the concept of idealizing the false child. So you're wanting, expecting the neurotypical child, and that's not what you get. So now you have to grieve the idealized child and accept and learn how to live with the child that you have. Right? Because there's so much, and um, and I can't say this enough. Too many parents out there comparing kids to other to other kids or even themselves when they were kids and you know all of this we want all of this to go away because your child cannot be someone they're not that's mm-hmm. one and they're perfectly wonderful as they are and you now it becomes your job to pull out their strengths not expect that they have the strengths of others right and so that's just one but okay but the three levels of acceptance once you go through your grieving process which if you guys just look it up I'm not going to go over the whole thing but dabda <laughs> okay, okay, it's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, right? And now we're going over acceptance, and I broke that down in three levels. There's like what I call slight acceptance first. And this area, when you're in slight acceptance, then you're like, now you're moving out of that space of, of denial, uh, trying to understand your child as a different child, you know, those kind of things. So that's getting into the slight acceptance, right? The partial acceptance is now... You're no longer, you have eliminated from your language, like comparisons to other children. That's when you've entered in a partial acceptance. You, why, it, the why can't you just kind of go, those kind of go away. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's not a why. Now it's no longer why can't you just, it's just a, okay, well, this behavior here is not going to cause success for you. So how do we create the bridge to get you into behavior that, will help cause you to be successful. That's partial acceptance. Full acceptance is now you're no longer judging anything. And full acceptance takes for you to fully accept self first. This is me getting into now. You have to do some serious self-actualization work to get to full acceptance because a larger portion of our judgment towards others comes from, it starts with self. If we're easier on ourselves, we're not judgmental. We're we're willing to give ourselves those, you know, that forgiveness and that next time and room to make mistakes and actually 
you guys, I get into weird spaces, so words bother me sometimes. But mistakes, I don't feel like there are any because I feel like we all have an opportunity to learn something. And I know that seems flighty or whatever, but I don't care. Because if you see a so-called mistake, which is supposed to be something negative, right, as something to learn from and you learn a little bit and you do a little better the next time because you learned the bit you needed to, then it becomes a wonderful thing. Like it becomes a stepping stone as opposed to something, you know, a drawback, right? Mm-hmm. But anyway, said so you have to do that work for self first. And then once you are full of that for yourself, then it will pour out of you towards others. So full acceptance requires like some serious personal growth work <laughs> and never telling yourself, like never losing your keys and and calling yourself all kinds of names because you lost your keys or, you know, doing those kind of things. And then we see others that are headed down a road that, you know, is going to cause them to be unhappy. Then you will be more in the space of, hey, okay, so, you know, this right here didn't work out very well for you. How about we try it this way next time? Mm -hmm. But again, that requires a lot of work. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well, what are some common struggles that you see with parents in trying to understand their child's needs? Oh man, common struggles. I think one of the biggest common struggles is you're trying to draw from your experiences to understand their experience, as opposed to understanding their experiences as belonging to them. So then you're not putting the, well, I would have, or I used to, or whatever, you don't put those into it. So I think that's usually like one of the biggest struggles for parents is to move beyond that mm-hmm. because they have such a hard time not comparing. Like that is like one of the toughest things. And then I would say that probably common struggle number two is even dealing with the concept because that's why I make it my first concept because it's the most difficult concept. Find your calm. That really does upset many parents. They they will say, well, how is that even possible when they're doing this, right? They give me all these extreme you know, situations. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, it becomes possible when you start to grow to understand more and more that it doesn't serve any good purpose for you to feel really upset. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not that, not that it's going to, you're going to become a robot and not feel. It's just that I'm saying that now that you felt something, I want you to find your calm so that you can create a situation where you are actually impactful now when you interact with the other person, because now you're in a space of, oh my goodness, okay, I want now your truest intentions, right? I want what's best for them, and this is not going to bring the best for them. Mm -hmm. So that find your calm piece just really irritates (laughs) people quite often. They're like, well, but you know, doesn't that mean I'm letting them get away with it? So I I really think kind of growing into the entire concept that I'm trying to give requires some work because they're like, but I'm justified in how I feel. But does this justification serve you? And is it truly justified if it doesn't serve you? Because ultimately you're looking to get your needs met and you're working against getting your own needs met by your reactions. Yeah. (laughs) And in the moment, it also requires a lot of perspective taking and putting yourself in your kid's shoes. So this leads to my next question, which, you know, in your first book, you describe a situation with a young boy and a blue tunnel. And you talk about that as actually being 
one of the most rewarding experiences you've ever had working with children on the spectrum. So could you share that story with us? Oh, man, I love Blue Tunnel Boy. Um, He (laughs) was actually the first child I've ever worked with on the spectrum. Like he was one of my first, the first cases given to me by the intensive outpatient program. He was a completely nonverbal, um, non-responsive to things happening outside of himself, mostly in his own world, basically, as they say. And at that time, I started to try to really research because I'm like, I wasn't taught in school how to deal with this at all. (laughs) So, you know, and I like to do a good job. So I started to do a lot of research and a lot of the research that I found out there, I was like, this is not going to help him. And so I was like, you know, I don't know what to do now at this point. And so instincts kind of kicked in with him and I understood him. So he would take this blue tunnel and every time I would try to talk to him, he would pick it up and put it over his head, like over his head and a portion of his like shoulders and stuff. Right. He'd been inside this little, it's like a little flexy blue tunnel. And I was like, oh my goodness. And then I would, I would come in and I'm like, I'm like, man, you don't want to talk to me. That's all you know, I'm sitting there thinking. He doesn't want to talk to me. And I was like, and I don't blame him because most of the time I don't want to talk to people either. <laughs> He's just more honest, right? He's just more honest about it. And so then one day I was like almost at my wit's end. I was like, I don't know what to do with this kid. And I was talking to him, put the tunnel over his head again. He threw the tunnel down. I looked down at the tunnel. Instincts told me, pick it up and see what it's like in there for him, right? Like, why don't you check it out? So I put the tunnel over my own head and I looked around and I was like, hmm, I can see why you like it in here. It, you know, <laughs> it, it drowns out sound. You can't see me. I can't see you. All you see is blue. Right. And I'm sitting here like engaged in being interested in why he was interested in the tunnel. <laughs> and then, of course, I realized, OK, you're in the office with a little seven year old. And he's not being monitored because you have a tunnel over your head. (laughs) (laughs) So so I pulled the tunnel down. And when I pulled the tunnel down for the first time ever, he was looking at me. And he was looking at me like, crazy lady, what are you doing? But, you know, he was looking (laughs) at me. And so he was looking at me and I was like, whoa. And I was like, oh, heck no. First instinct. Oh, heck no. If. I don't get to look at you. You don't get to look at me. And I pull the tunnel back up. (laughs) (laughs) And then when I pull it back down, this time he had the slightest smile in his eyes. Like, what is this crazy lady doing? But he was (laughs) looking at me. And then it just turned into this like weird little game of Mm peekaboo with this. And, but it was, it was so funny because after I did that, it opened something up to where now, and it's slowly but surely, I'm not saying it happened in a day, but slowly but surely, and it didn't take much time, he was allowing me to play next to him at first. Because at first he would just move wherever, if I was there, he was moving, right? But then he would be playing with something and I would sit next to him or a couple of things, he would take one of them and throw it at me, basically. And I would start playing with it like, oh, okay. Oh, you gave me something to play with? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited now. <laughs> you know? And then it slowly, but it moved into then cooperative play where mm-hmm. we would play whatever he wanted to play. And then it grew to where then it was, we would play what he wanted to play, then he would play what I wanted to play. And, you know, then we'd take turns and it kind of grew. And within like, a, it took less than six months, he was starting to speak. He was starting to now talk to other people. He was starting to 
engaged with his mom. He was engaging at school. The teacher went crazy the day that one of the children on the playground fell. And he walked over to the the child and asked him, are you okay? And helped them up. The teacher went ballistic. Like, Mm -hmm. what? What happened? What's going on? You know, all this. And it just, you know, it really was just kind of entering into his world and then him taking an interest in entering into mine, which led to now it kind of created the bridge for him to interact with others. So most rewarding work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that story. And it's a good reminder for a lot of professionals out there who are struggling with these so-called hard to engage with kids. Like I get asked these questions a lot too. Like I have no idea how to connect with him. He just doesn't like anything. There's nothing reinforcing in the room. It's like, well, you have to be a little bit more creative. Watch what he's interested in. Meet him at his level. Find his strengths and build on that. Yes. Yes, for sure. For sure. And this also comes with a measure of understanding, especially, you know, as professionals, it has to be understood that it's been overwhelming oftentimes for these kids who, you know, are not interested in uh, the things that you want them to become interested in. They've been overwhelmed by just, like I said, the sensory nightmare of Mm. dealing with this world. And then the disappointment. Now, this is from the beginning. You know, it just depends because and it's tough. So because I want people to understand I'm never trying to parent blame. You can only operate according to your knowledge base. Right. And so it's just if you're having a struggle, then there are more things that you need to learn is what we, you know, what we have to truly understand. And we have to be willing to move out of what we know, even if it's if it makes so much sense for every other kid in the world but ours. If it doesn't work for our kid, then we need to find a new way, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's just so very, very important to meet them where they are. If you, even if it's something that you don't, you really, really don't like, just understand that you like being able to engage with your kid like for professionals out there it's understand that you like to feel productive in your work right and so then you're not taking and trying to you know like they always say that put this the square peg in the round hole you know right yeah you're not trying to put the square peg into the round hole anymore which is ineffective useless really <laughs> You know, quite honestly. Right. So so move into a space where it's like, okay, maybe there is a new area of understanding that I need to to get to in order to help them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Switching topics, Affair, in your third book, you talk about the hidden effects of family dynamics. Can you talk about what some of those issues are? They run really deep and this is where it gets kind of tough if I haven't been doing the work with people. Cause you know, they think, Oh, you know, this is just, you know, blaming us. And I'm really not oftentimes when you have issues with your children, when you have behavior issues with your children, then there tends to be some kind of disruption in other relationships. So like with the couples, oftentimes Having a problem child will actually be the glue that keeps the couple together because now they don't have to focus on the issues that they really have with one another. They're focused on the behaviors of the child, right? So that's something they can align on. So then their relationship is kind of built around the disordered child, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what I found often is that once we get the child's behaviors improved, 
then the issues that were with the couple, they really do start to come out. So either it's if you have more than one child, one child or another is acting out. So if we get one that's no longer acting out, there's a new one who takes the child's place who's now acting out, right? Or if we get all the children in, you know, where they need to be, where the behaviors where it needs to be, then you start to see the couple's issues come out, right? Mm-hmm. But those are some of the, um, that's just one of the primary, right? When we talk about hidden effects of family dynamics. That's just one of the primaries that I brought up. People don't, they often don't like that because they don't want to take a look at, and this is where I get into why I always say the real truth, understanding the real truth, right? Because we all have our truths that that are easier for our egos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there's the real truth, <laughs> right? And if you deal in the real truth a little, you can make things move along a little more quickly for everything else. So, so as a marriage and family therapist, do you also help the couples in their own problems or do you? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. I have to, I have to, I don't have a choice when I, when I work with, uh, it's, it's never that I work with a problem child. I work with the entire unit and sometimes it's beyond the unit and that, and, and the support system outside of it because, or if there is no support system, then we have to create one, of course. But I work with siblings. I work with the parents in their couple situation. Oftentimes when you have your problem child, then you'll also have two parents who have very different perspectives on what should be happening with that child. You usually have your overcompensator, right? Both, no, both are overcompensating for the other. So one feels like the one parent is too mean and the other one feels like the other parent is too lenient. So they both overcompensate in those areas, which creates an extreme lack of balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and then now you have more problems with your kid because they can't take seriously what either of you are saying because you aren't giving them a clear message, you know, mm-hmm. and so and things like that. So, but it's uh, very interesting. <laughs> yeah, and I do want to point out because I can see you on video right now. So whenever you are saying disorder and whenever you're saying problem child, you're putting up these kinds of air quotes. Yes. Yeah. Yes, because it, those words they annoy me. Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes you don't have a problem child if you're not a problem yourself. I I don't mean to, you know, like I said, I, I never mean to, to parent blame, but I'm saying that we can always take a look at, actually, we always have to take a look at our part in the interactions. If we don't take a look at our part, our individual parts in the interaction, and we're always looking at what the other's doing outside of us, right, then what ends up happening is we don't get the results that we want because we can only change us. And when we change us, then it changes how others relate to and respond to us. It changes the dynamic. Mm -hmm. And I think also there's something to be said about using this kind of language when trying to move towards acceptance. Like if you are describing your child as being problematic are you really fully accepting them for who they are? Exactly. You know, it's not their fault. Sometimes these very hypersensitive children can't help when they're going to be confronted with some kind of sensory overload. It's not fair to be even saying that they are challenging. You know, you can kind of call the situation challenging maybe, but I just hear from a lot of autistic adults who are speaking up about this trauma of always having to change themselves for the people around them 
Yes. And it affects them when they become adults. There are high rates of anxiety and depression and suicide with the autistic community, unfortunately. Yes. And I think it starts at a young age with the language that they're hearing in the house. If they're hearing their parents calling them problem children, what does that do to them and their confidence? Yes, yes. And, oh, that's so perfectly said. Um, and then you have to think about it when you're in the know yourself, know your child space. Okay. So then knowing yourself, you have to understand that when you call someone a problem child, then that's exactly what they're going to be in your mind. Mm. And then you end up with self-fulfilling prophecy as well. So you're going to make the thing happen that you think exists. That's how it works. Mm -hmm. Right. So then unintentionally through your reactions, you are actually promoting the thing you don't want. So you're putting too much energy into the thing that you don't want, giving it power, as opposed to now taking the energy, same energy, because you know you can just divert it in a different direction and focus more and more on the things that you do want. So like I said earlier, I have two great children. So remember I said that earlier about my two my two youngest, they, they would argue a lot. And so my, my response to them would be, oh, I have two beautiful children, two great children. So I, my, the only assumption I can make is that if you're over arguing is that you might be overtired or there's something else going on with you. And I would, you know, I would suggest that, you know, you maybe deal with the thing that's whatever's going on with you so that you don't get yourselves in a space where now it's like, you won't like the assumptions that I make. Because if I think you're overtired, that means, oh, earlier bedtime today. Mm-hmm. Not as a punishment, but because I want to bring out my beautiful kids mm-hmm. <laughs> that are struggling right now, right? And so then you you move out of being punitive and you move into kind of doing what we're supposed to do, which is to teach. These behaviors benefit you more. And if you need help getting to those behaviors, I'm going to help you. I'm not going to assume that you suck as a kid to do that either because that doesn't benefit either of us i'm going to assume that there's something else going on that is impeding your ability to get yourself under control (laughs) right yeah and it becomes such a different thing oh what did my daughter tell me the other day it was so oh okay i sometimes have her and that's one of the ways that i kind of help to grow her self-esteem is i would actually have her help me with my neurodiverse group so she's extremely shy like to a like behind hide behind your leg vel- velcro behind your leg get the pillar off kind of shy right <laughs> <laughs> so um but in order to kind of break her out of it i would say hey can you come help me um i have some other kids that are really shy right and i want you to help me out with the groups right so as a younger child i would have her help me with the groups she's older now and i had her help me with a teen group and because of the whole COVID thing, she wasn't acclimated anymore to trying to socialize. You know, it's effort for her. Mm-hmm. And so it was so funny. She went to the group and she was just completely like kind of shut down. She was drawing full a full mural on her arm because she's a, you know, an artist. Like I told you, she was just mm-hmm. like not engaged at all. And I was like, babe, I was like, I sent you in there to get the group going, you know, whatever. And she said to me this, she said, mom, it's been a year since I've been around people and you know that I don't do the social thing. Well, you have to give me time to reacclimate basically. And I was like, Ooh, my bad. (laughs) I was like, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. (laughs) But I was so impressed and excited Uh about her, you know, ability to verbalize that because those are the things 
Yeah. That's how you move your children into the space that you want them in is by teaching, not judging, not being frustrated or irritated because they're not doing something the right way, but by saying to them, hey, babe, you know, how about you try it this way next time? Because this this way really doesn't work. Right. It's just an entirely different way. It doesn't work well. Right. For you getting the results that you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's teaching her how to self-advocate also yes. for her own yes. needs. Yeah. Yes. Yes. In responding in alignment with your truest intentions, one of my favorite things to give the parents is this what I call the power talk formula. It's basically when you, you know, dot, 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 like this unlovely, you know, behavior or whatever, it causes dot, 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 a reaction that is not really going to cause you to be happy, Right. And I know that's not your intention so that we can get rid of this whole, you're doing this thing on purpose attitude. Not that people are saying it, but their reactions are conveying a thought, I mean, or an assumption that the misbehavior or whatever is being done on purpose. Like they're doing it to them. Right. And I know that's not your intention. So please dot, dot, dot new acceptable behavior. So when you, yell at me. I don't know. When you yell at me, it causes me to be less inclined to hear what you're saying because I can't process it because I'm upset. And I know that's not your intention. I know you want me to hear you. So could you please get yourself into a place where you can kind of lower your voice because then I can process what you're saying better. Mm, mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. yeah, when you, it causes, and I know that's not your intention. So please. Yeah. That's a really helpful framework. And you also talk about avoiding potential pothole moments. Could you describe what you mean by a pothole moment? I want to say like probably biggest pothole moments come from personalization, first of all. So just please work on not personalizing the behaviors of others. Please keep their behaviors about them um, and not in a negative way, just in a way that you can be helpful. Right. That's one. Mm -hmm. But then another pothole that I love to mention to parents and I want to make sure everybody out there hears is oftentimes, especially for children on the autism spectrum, the novelty doesn't wear off. And that actually, I don't want to say especially for children on the spectrum. This is a neurodiverse situation here, but the novelty often often does not wear off. So if there's a situation where something happened negative, you know, negatively, hey, like they tried a new food and it made them feel sick for example, right? Then the idea of trying a new food, even if it's a different food than what they tried in the first place, can potentially be very upsetting to them because they will feel as if trying new foods is the problem, right? They will feel like now I'm going to get sick if I try this new food because that's what happened before, right? So then their emotional reaction to being asked can be very high, because they're feeling what they felt back the first time when they tried the the, the food that was gross to them. Mm -hmm. But then this can go the same for arguments. So if before it was a big fight to have them do their chores, for example, then even if you've improved the way you approach them about it, like now you have the languaging down, it's improved, right? Then you may still get, even though your language has changed, a strong reaction from them because now it's like as soon as you bring it up, it takes them back into when there's a lot of argument in the past for it. Okay, That's a huge pothole. So as you start to change, 
then you can become frustrated because you see that you or you think, oh, well, it doesn't make a difference if I have a bad reaction or try to have a, you know, a good response. They're still reacting the same. Right. So if you understand that there's a struggle with the novelty wearing off, then you make that now your new teachable moment where you teach them how to decrease the effects, the emotional effects of the novelty not wearing off for them. Okay. Even if the languaging would be like, I know that this was an extremely tough time before, like I would yell at you before, or I would, you know, speak to you in, you know, very upsetting tones, you know, before about cleaning your room. I'm really trying to make changes with that. So if you could please just recognize that sometimes you have a hard time with, you know, letting go of how it worked in the past. I really, really appreciate it if you noticed that I was trying, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Then it really does. Or or you really hated it when I yelled before. You know, I'm trying so hard because you hate it when I yelled to say it in a different way to you. If you could help me out just a little bit, I really appreciate it because I'm trying to do better for you kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Then that helps too. You know? Yeah. I like the name, the pothole moment. And, you know, we have a pretty wide audience that's international. So I just like to explain what a pothole is for some people who might not know, right? And I think it's a really good analogy because you have this paved road, right? So it's like you've established this relationship with your child through hard work. And then all of a sudden, there's a bump in the road, and a pothole is kind of like a, Hole caused by, you know, some kind of overuse of tires or like rain, heavy rain. And so... Yeah, just some form of damage. Damage, right. And so then the car feels it when it goes over the pavement. It kind of like, it's like a kind of jolt. It's not as smooth anymore. So it's kind of like that in that interaction. Yes. And the deeper the pothole, the more damage that can be done to to the tires, to the vehicle. Mm. So then you might even find yourself stalled because mm-hmm. you hit a big enough pothole, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right? So yeah, the analogy is, is I love the analogy because it sets you up to when you do have a bumpy moment that you're able to recognize it as such. So then you're like, oh, shoot. Okay, that was a pothole moment. Okay, now how much, and this is it because this gives us power now. How much damage am I going to allow that to have inflicted, you know, on our vehicle? Are we going to be able to keep moving through this and get back to smooth road, right? Or are we going to be stuck in this pothole? Right. Yeah. So, Lafayette, you work with so many families, and I'm wondering how you practice cultural sensitivity with the different people that you work with and the different environments that they might live in. Okay. So, the thing that I've learned in the work that I do is that because it's about relationship, it really is successful across cultures because it it really is getting to the, now you're interacting with another human being in a way that respects how they function. So it built in it. The philosophy itself is the epitome of cultural sensitivity because now you're not dealing with a person based on your beliefs how you've been acculturated. You're dealing with them based in how they relate. So you're learning how they relate so that you can relate to them where they are 
instead of where you think they should be. Mm-hmm. So I believe that it's like the epitome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That's why I've, you know, I've been able to kind of take this and move it again beyond just parenting now into like staff development and that kind of thing because we're addressing those areas just by nature of how we're responding to others now and that with that non-judgmental attitude. Mm-hmm. Do you see a difference across cultures, like specifically with the Black community, in how traditional parenting is and maybe how they respond to your approach? There's a few groups that I work with now, but I work with groups that they're working in intergenerational trauma. And the intergenerational trauma is more of the Black experience, at least where I'm where I'm working. And they respond extremely well to my philosophy. And that's been kind of a very high point for me because I was nervous because I know how um, some of the Black community could be like, you know, they don't need therapy, they need church, you know, and different stuff like that, right? And not say, so I'm not trying to be, you know, whatever, not trying to be rude, but I know how my, how my community works. <laughs> and um, it's been very well embraced. As a matter of fact, about 30 minutes from now, I will be at the program, the intergenerational program that I work with, with kids who have gang affiliations and all those kind of things who grew up in very, very poor neighborhoods, very, you know, tough experience for these kids. And we are working on cop and community relations. Uh, They're sitting in the room together with us to speak to officers to learn how to get along better and teach the officers how to get along better with them. And they listen. And I'll tell you, the Lafayette way is quite effective and the kids even bring it up. They're learning how now to interact better with other people using more productive languaging because the Lafayette way is all about not working against yourself. So if you hate the results that you've been getting, you hate getting into trouble, you hate all these things, then let's teach you a way to get more of what you want instead of more of what you don't want. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, yes. All right, Lafayette. I'd like to close with one last question. I mean, this has kind of been our whole conversation, but if you could just give one piece of advice to parents who are struggling to connect with their children, what would you say? I would say that the best way to connect is to start where they are, is to really take an interest in what they're interested in. And quite honestly, to make that valid and important. <laughs> so my, my big biggest piece is if you can validate their experience, then they will be more inclined to validate yours. All right. How can people learn more about you? Now, to learn more about me, you can find me through the Way everywhere. So if you go to LaFayaway.com, first of all, You'll find everything it is that I do there. Um, I have my YouTube channel. You can go to youtube.com slash Way. You find me. Instagram, you find me under Lafayette underscore way. Facebook, you find me, Way. If you search Way, you can find me. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. This has been a really valuable conversation. And I hope many parents can apply these strategies when working with their kids and professionals too. Like as you were talking, I was like, oh, that's, I could even do that, like, with my friends, you know, (laughs) like just any relationship that I have. So it's very widely applicable. Yes. Yeah. I'm excited about it. So 
And for parents out there who are maybe looking to gain better responses from their children, I do have programs for you. We have our Parents Empowering Parents program. I am respectful of the fact that the parent is the expert. The parents are the experts. They, it's, they're never missing it by a mile. My job is to teach them how, is to inch them in the direction that they truly mean to go in the work that I do. Right. Well, keep up everything that you're doing. It's so important for the communities that you're serving. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Lafaya advises parents to meet their children where they are, encouraging them to live their honest truth. I would take it a step further and suggest that this approach can work for anyone hoping to connect with others in a healthy way. We're all looking for validation of some sort. If we relate to each other without judgment, we may discover that we actually have the same goal. Like Lafaya, are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Are you a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Are you a self-advocate willing to share your story and educate others? Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our global autism community to connect and collaborate with people all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.